You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the show. Today, our topic is social spaces. As a fourth year, I take it for granted now, but years ago, I was learning how to conduct myself in large lecture halls for the first time, shared community spaces on campus, whether it be the quiet of the library or the encouraged rowdiness of a Rick's Wednesday at the Spoke. Figuring out how to operate in these spaces is a thought process that is neither entirely conscious or subconscious. Dr. Anne Simone from the Department of Biology studies fruit flies in order to better understand how different species behave in communal spaces, and furthermore, how we can connect their truths to the human experience. Here we go. Do you know of any species that are comically far apart in their social spaces? Comically, I don't know what we would find comic. I think uh, I was thinking of an example that's a little bit uh, not comic, but so uh, animals that are uh, called solitary, like males, uh, elephant, for example, they tend to roam on their own. But to be on their own, they need to be able to identify others and decide to not be there. So that's also recognition of others. I think the comical part are when you see those penguins, they're all tucked together. I think when we see right. a group of tightly uh, spaced individuals, we find that more funny. Right, yeah, we just got two cats at my family home, and, and we already had a dog, and the cats are quite solitary, but the dog just wants to, like, sniff their butts all the time. So and they're get, running away? Yeah, and <laughs> scratching him, telling him to go away. Do all animals kind of share this idea of an inherent normal guideline for how to interact in these spaces? Yes, and uh, I think the animals that would steer away from what is appropriate for the species uh, would not necessarily um, have any advantage in terms of uh, reproduction. So if there is a certain distance that's appropriate um, and you're too close or too far, that might be a problem. But um, that's a hunch. <laughs> so I don't. I know in human, when you have abnormal social space, it tends to be related to some... Uh, difficulty in reading social cues. So I'm making the assumption that it might be a disadvantage in uh, animals elsewhere, not, not non-human. So let's talk about the root of that. So in the brain, what goes on when we're trying to figure out how to occupy these spaces? So basically that social space, that space bubble that individuals have and feel comfortable is uh, determined by receiving the information. There is someone else from my species or close enough, like your cats and dogs. <laughs> and, um, and different animals are going to use different senses, uh, modalities, so it can be vision and smell or touch. And with that information, it's integrated and then you're going to have an output, the behavior that's going to correspond to what's okay for that species. We're at opposite ends of the table here, talking into different microphones. We're a little bit far, actually, for what would be (laughs) my comfortable human social space. Yes. 
But it would be strange if I had pulled up right beside you and gone, yep. let's just share one microphone. That would have felt so strange too. What kind of messages are going on in my okay. brain if I were to have done that? So in, in human, we know that there are uh, cultural differences, but we also know that it's an uh, inability to read cues. If you had come to share the mic with me, I probably would have moved away without even thinking twice. Mm-hmm. And you would have picked up on that cue and realized, oh, that's too close. Let's say you would have pushed your chair without paying attention. So you would have read on my social cues and we would have determined by interacting together and looking at each other what feels comfortable without really thinking about it. It's not an actively conscious act. No. And if someone does not respond to those cues, you're thinking, what are they doing? So that means someone would not pick up on the fact you're kind of scooch on the other side. So I think that in uh, in animals, all animals, you would have to properly sense the signals of that's okay. And if it's not close enough, then the other animal would come closer. And then you would have that balance of attraction and repulsion kind of, okay, come closer, but then you're too close. And so what is the too close is going to depend a lot on why the animals are forming those social groups and that social space. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the subconscious element of it because I think there are scenarios in which you do need to read the room and actually actively analyze, is this person uncomfortable? Say if I'm interviewing someone and I ask a question that maybe they're not comfortable with, what would be the difference in how our brain tries to figure it out when it's something subconscious versus something that requires a little more thought? Well, I think what's uh, subconscious is probably going to be shared. That's my hope. Uh, in terms of what we would share with other animals, it would go way faster. So let's say, for example, a moment where you're going to use your thoughts. Let's say there was only one mic here. We would both have to overcome the uncomfort of the situation. So it's uncomfortable, but you can't. We can't both speak if we're not on the so we on the same mic. So we would have to overcome that. So the thoughtful, the thought process is going to allow us to overcome some inherent and conscious basic responses. I guess I'm trying to also get a feel for and the chemical messaging that goes on in the brain between an obvious situation versus a more subtle one. So I don't think it's the chemical that's going to be different because we have a lot of chemicals that are used in different parts of the brain, so the neurotransmitters. And one thing we found in the model in my work is that dopamine is important for to help determining the normal social space. And actually, dopamine is responding to the social experience. So we think it might be downstream of sensing the environment, the social environment in that case. But I think it's more the parts of the brain that is going to be important for those differences. All the thought process that we're speaking about to overcome that spontaneous behavior, it's going to be in our cortex in human. And the more emotional response is going to be more central, uh, more deep in the brain. And those deeper functions uh, would be conserved, or I hope are evolutionary, evolutionary conserved. Right. Well, I think are evolutionary conserved. Could uh, you talk a little bit more about dopamine? Because I find it surprising that that's a chemical that comes out in social situations. Because you think of it as a pleasure uh, so chemical. Dopamine is, so what gives you pleasure if you eat chocolate, is serotonin. 
Right. What wants you to eat more dopamine, more chocolate because you had pleasure is dopamine. So dopamine is more related to the motivation and uh, going after what's pleasurable. So in that case, um, it would mean that uh, being in close proximity might be uh, feeling uh, rewarding or pleasurable. So you would like to have that more, more of that. So that goes through the dopamine. So and do comfortable social situations are what's pleasurable in this situation. Oh, yeah. I'm making a jump here. Yes. So, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so basically the idea is that, so here it's more um, conceptual. The idea is that what would be evolutionary advantages, what would help your species right. to keep on passing its genes down would be would become pleasurable and you would do more of it so that it can be passed on. Why did you decide to run trials with fruit flies to get a better understanding of humans? Have you ever looked at a fruit fly close by? Can't say too closely. <laughs> They're beautiful. They have a golden body <sighs> with red eyes. They're bright. Okay, no. <laughs> they are if you look them close. When you work on fruit flies, so first you're working with a simpler model than if you were to work with a mammal, but they have in a fascinating way a lot of conserved processes. So a neuron in a fruit fly or a neuron in human are very similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. They're using the same molecules. And in the fruit fly, you can within your same the same laboratory without too much uh, need for expenses to pay for uh, expensive equipment, you can study the genetics, you can study the physiology, so you can dissect and look at the brain and stain it, look at electric currents, you can look at, um, right now we're trying to look at dopamine, so you can do pharmacology studies and biochemistry studies. So on one simple animal, you can really have access to a lot of aspects that can surround one particular field of interest whether it's heart development, brain function, reproduction. Right. What kind of trait do we share with them that are observable? So we identified first, when I say we, it's a royal we, the world of researchers. Okay, not just <laughs> your lab? No, <laughs> that was a long time ago. People first identified the molecules involved in uh, learning and memory and what differentiates learning from short-term memory, from long-term memory. All those molecules were identified in the fruit fly first, in Drosophila melanogaster. Uh, we also share uh, the molecules important for circadian rhythm. There was a Nobel Prize in 2017 for that. So that was first identified in the flies. Um, some flies, and we sleep also the same way flies do. So some flies had daily rhythm that uh, was off. So we, as the flies, as the plants, have daily rhythm. We're responding to the light that sets on. It can be the light, it can be the temperature that sets on our clock. And that clock runs for around 24, 25 hours. And then the sun or the temperature changes in at night or in the morning are going to set the clock again mm -hmm. and those molecules that are involved in uh, setting the clock at the molecular level are the same and they were first identified in fruit flies. What do we share? A male that has been rejected by a female is going to prefer to drink alcohol 
uh, than water, which is not the case if the male was able to successfully mate. Are fruit flies share that trait? Yep. That's so, r- <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, they are doing certain things better, though. If we were to give them two type of um, solutions that taste sugary, but one would be a sugar and the other one would be a fake sugar, an amino acid, they would be able to sense if they are starving, they would be able to eat more of the real sugar. But if they are satiated, they have eaten enough, they don't really care. They will drink the solution that has the sugary taste because they like it. But if they're starving, they'll eat the real caloric one so that they can replace their stocks of energy. I'm I'm definitely going to go home and tell my housemates about that alcohol. Uh, oh, what do they share? The way they respond to uh, drugs. So at some point, when you speak about the dopaminergic system, you also look at molecules that can um, be manipulated through different drugs. Right. such as cocaine, methamphetamine. Those are the same targets, and we can right. study them. Do they also like to share a cigarette after mating with their partner? <laughs> mm, do they smoke? They respond to nicotine. Huh. <laughs> They're a lot more chill than I imagined. They are, <laughs> if you give them the opportunity. So tell us, if we were to come by your lab, what kind of various experiments we'd see with the fruit flies. So we're looking a different type of experiments, but we're focusing on social interaction. So we have an assay in which we put the flies in a little arena that is very flat. There is just little spacers so that they can go in between the spacers uh, within two glass plates. And uh, so they can't fly away and they're in 2D. So we can take a picture of that. And we let them roam in there and settle to their preferred social space. So you would see that in a room that's not so different from this uh, recording room here, apart from the fact that the walls would be white, the tables would be white. We're trying to have a homogeneous light, no scent. We don't want to disturb the flies. Uh, people's have the people who are working there have white clothes or white lab coats and we're trying to look at their spontaneous activity when they are not starved, they're well mated, so they don't have issues like the males we spoke about before. Uh, they are not disrupted by noise and sounds and we do that in the middle of the afternoon when they tend to not look for food and not look for mating and tend to be sleeping. They have a little afternoon nap. That's when we're looking at their preferred social space. Another behavior we look at is how flies are going to avoid other flies' scent that flies emit when they're stressed. So we're going to take flies, shake them (laughs) in a little vial, remove the flies, and other flies are going to avoid the vial in which there is the marking, the scent of the flies that have been stressed. And so that is also a response to a social cue left by uh, other flies, the marking. And with that, we're looking at the volatiles. So we're uh, collaborating with Agriculture Canada to identify those volatiles that the flies are avoiding and try to see if we can um, use some of that in more practical applications beyond the lab. Maybe we could try to find um, traps or way to deter fruit flies in your kitchen. Can you talk about the differences in the way male and female fruit flies understand and act in social spaces? So that's very interesting. The So they are a little bit different in size, and when we measure their social space, we're measuring body length, which is oftentimes what we do in ecology 
for ducks and other type of uh, aggregation of uh, animals. So the males and the females fruit flies uh, that we're studying tend to have a similar social space. Now, it seems like the parts of the brains important to come to that decision are not the same, or the circuitry are not the same in males and females. Because if you subject them to different experience, so the females and the males don't respond the same to social isolation, or not as fast, so the females are more resilient to the social isolation. If you, they'll I, try again. So they seem. So if you uh, isolate the males and the females for two days, so that the work of uh, Riley, uh, Riley Yost, uh, grad student, PhD student in the lab, if you isolate both males and females and you put them back, uh, just in the assay, they have no social experience before, the males tend to be further apart, less social is our interpretation of that distance. And uh, the female, you need to isolate them for seven days to start seeing something, so they are not as affected. And interestingly, their dopamine level is not as affected either in the female. The males respond faster to the change in the environment. So if you don't disturb them, they have a similar social space. But if you push them a little bit by changing their environment, they respond differently. And we have mutants like that that look like a predisposition to social um, spacing abnormality. And it's in, so that's work we're doing with Riley, but also with uh, Wes Robinson, another PhD in the student in the lab, another PhD student in the lab. Um, when we're looking, so we're looking at social space and avoidance of social sense. We're also looking at other assays like climbing, locomotion, um, and in collaboration with another group in the department, the group of Graham Thompson, uh, we're looking, they're looking on our flies at social interaction networks. So what are the flies doing exactly? How often, how do they come to that distance? Who are they touching in which order? Anyway, it looks like the females that have one of those mutations are not affected, but the males are. So there's a mutation in a gene where only the males are affected. And that's interesting because it's a gene that's been associated to autism in human. Mm. So other mutations in the same gene don't do that. It's just one specific mutation that looks like a predisposition. So what you're doing is you're kind of trying to nurture this awkwardness in the flies, right? By isolating them for days at a time. True. How how does it change when you look at nature versus nurture? Somebody that's kind of been predisposed to being abnormal in a group setting versus somebody that maybe through rejection has learned to isolate themselves. Yeah. So in, in both cases, it could come from predisposition and um, experience. Because there is a part of experience, the hope we're having, or nurture, what you call nurture, it's life experience, or what we're trying to look at is how it could be reversed. So basically, one way experience can affect your behavior is by affecting some of those neurotransmitters that we're speaking about. So how much of those neurotransmitters are um, released uh, in a synapse, how much are use, is used to communicate, how strong is the synapse, um, how strongly is the synapse going to be able to answer. So if the experience is able to switch that normal communication between cells, 
because you already have a, a predisposition to not be quite at the typical baseline, then experience could also help you go back. So what we're looking at in the lab is how, how is it possible to take those isolated flies that have abnormal, abnormal, atypical social behavior. Maybe it's completely normal when you've been isolated. If you were in the wild and you've been isolated, maybe it made completely sense to be a little bit more distant um, and in that case more aggressive too. So when we say abnormal, it might be completely normal for that particular experience. It might be adaptive. But is it possible to bring back to the previous baseline through enriching socially again or through changing the environment? How can we bring that back? So that's what we're trying to understand. What's happening so that predisposition gets back to becoming a predisposition instead of having individuals displaying the atypical social response? Is that making sense? Yeah, yeah. I have, uh, I have a setting that kind of just came to mind. Prison to me seems like a really good example of the stuff you look at because you have all these people trying to feel one another out. They're not familiar with one another. Some sort of hierarchy evolves. There's people that are more separated from the group. And then solitary confinement, famous for breaking a man. Yeah. And just how people reinsert themselves back into the group if they've been in solitary confinement for a month. It's kind of just what your well, research reminded me of. Well, that's, what, that's kind of what we're doing Yeah. now that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> we are putting them in solitary confinement and try to figure out what it takes for them to behave as the group does. And so certain flies are going to be able to go back to what the group does and certain mutations are such that they can't. So it's like they are shifted in a way that you can't go back. And we're trying to understand how is that possible? What's happening downstream of the proteins encoded by those genes? How is the circuitry affected so that it does it has lost the plasticity? to be able to go back with a different social experience. Right. So it can go both ways. You can lose some of that ability, but you can also get it back. Yeah, and it kind of really depends on your genetic makeup. There's a very interesting uh, image that has been used by one of my favorite researchers in Drosophila field. And so uh, it's someone called Marla Sokolovsky. Her two kids were students at Western, actually. And um, she, the way she wrote her articles was such an inspiration. I really enjoyed her work, and I was so lucky to be able to finally meet her when I came to Canada, because I knew of her a long time ago. And she looked, she noticed social interactions between larvae, larva stage of the fruit fly. So those little larvae, the maggots, that people don't think too much about, or at least not in good terms. <laughs> she was looking at how they were moving together, and. She worked a lot in that field, and whatever she found in the those social interactions of the larvae, um, she was able to expand and apply to other type of research, including in human, how experience is going to shape your behavior and how it's related to the genes you have. And she had that image, I learned through her, I don't know if she's the one who coined it, of the uh, inhuman of the orchid kid and the dandelion kids. And so it's to signify that you have two types of individuals. The dandelions would be able to thrive regardless of the environment, whether they're well nurtured or not. 
the orchid kids will be much more sensitive to what the environment is towards them. They can flourish and become beautiful and strong and creative. Mm. But if they don't have, if they have too much stressful events, they will just uh, wither. So these two are to signify the different genetic makeup. And in the same environment, individuals are going to do very differently. Yes. So they're much more flexible and yeah. the other ones are much more rigid. So it's an issue of upside for their life. One is more potential, but at the lower basement for more how terrible s- yeah, things can get. Yeah, more sensitive to the environment yeah. so that they can make the best of a wonderful environment. Yeah. And the others don't really care of the environment. They're going to achieve their potential regardless. Right. Uh, and that's extreme, right? You have anything in between. But that was to reflect in easy terms what she found, that you can have the genetic basis, and some people will not be different at all, even though they have the dandelion or orchid background, because one would have had no stress and the other had a bit too much stress for their potentials. Right. Yeah. The research I'm doing would absolutely not be possible without all the students who are coming in the lab. And I really enjoy having a diverse crowd of students because they are all asking questions a bit like what you're asking trying to figure out from their own perspective what's important in behavior. And the fact that I have people of different ages, of different background, of different ethnicity, it's making the, of different training from biochemist to geneticist. It's making it a lot of fun. So I enjoyed having that type of discussions that keep me on my toes and make me think about, okay, wait a minute, how do I make sense of all that? How do we make sense of all that? So I want to have a big uh, shout, shout Shout out. Shout out. Uh, has anyone ever made the prison analogy before? Yeah, actually. <sighs> not, no, no, no. Not in the way you did. Not in the way You're you through did. You're the podcast. Still got my fastball. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in the way you did. But people have wondered in another context about how. Um, so you have certain human genetic disorders where uh, the individuals are super social. Right. Hyper social. Williams syndrome. And they were wondering if hyper-aggressive people that would have the... So Williams syndrome have a, uh, a lack of 21 genes. And if whether you would find an addition of those genes, a duplication in prisons more often. And actually you don't. You find them in psychopaths. Okay. <laughs> Which might or not be in prisons. Well, I think that's a lovely note for us to finish up on. <laughs> All right, that wraps up another episode of Western Science Speaks. If you enjoyed the show, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, and Radio Western bi-weekly on Mondays at 11.30. Thanks to Anne Simone for coming on. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.